How many newcomers are there out there this morning? Oh, great. I'd like to uh, extend a special welcome to all the newcomers. Just two years ago in Minneapolis, I was a newcomer, and uh, I had just been discharged from the hospital, was newly sober and was still pretty foggy myself. In fact, two years ago, I couldn't remember my own zip code or my social security number. Uh, my memory was so bad that at the banquet where they introduced the newcomers, I got up to go to the bathroom and I never made it back to the banquet. <laughs> so I finally got to introduce myself last year in Savannah, and even that almost didn't happen because I got lost in a rainstorm driving from Atlanta to Savannah. Now there are two things that the uh, doctors in my recovery group tend to be kind of reluctant to talk about. Uh, one is difficulty with their sex life, and the other is difficulty with their cognition or their thinking. And, and I don't blame them, really. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty scary if you can't perform sexually, but maybe even worse if you do, but can't remember that you did. So I'll be talking this morning about some of the cognitive difficulties I've had related to alcohol, how they developed, how they were missed for many years by me and by others, how they were finally picked up, and thank God how they are finally going away. Yes, after some frightening years, I am happy to say finally emerging from the fog, and I think it's getting sunny out there too this morning, so at any rate. I'll be reviewing some of the literature, and I would like to uh, thank Ann Geller in New York uh, for her help in that regard. So another name for this presentation might have been Cognitive Dysfunction in the Chronic Alcoholic, or What Happens When You Pickle Your Brain. <laughs> now all this starts like so many other things with the first drink. I, I sure remember mine. I was 17 and I had just graduated from high school, and I found a place where I could buy a case of Miller's High Life beer by saying it was for my boss. I was working as a delivery boy, and after I had purchased a couple of cases for my boss, I thought it only fitting that I buy one for myself. I remember chugging those uh, first three beers like someone who had just crossed the Sahara Desert. Uh, I thereafter discovered Columbus, Ohio, and the rest of America all in one short evening. I then proceeded over the next 35 years to do exactly the very worst thing I could have done as far as my brain was concerned. I was one of those steady, almost everyday drinkers uh, from the time I started till I, got, till I finally got admitted to the program in La Jolla a little over two years ago. So the best way to be an alcoholic is to drink up a storm and go to the bottom real fast and uh, get it all over with while you're still pretty young. At least that's the best way in terms of your brain cells. I was lucky by some standards. I never got a ticket for drunken driving and I never lost a job and I never lost a wife. At least not one I can remember. Uh, I was just losing my mind. <laughs> As, as far as the driving part, though, I guess I was 
especially fortunate because I can remember in medical school one time driving my car down the railroad track. Uh, but I guess the police weren't looking for drunken drivers on the railroad track that morning. Or, or was I lucky after all? If I had gotten into more trouble way back in my 20s and had been sent to AA back in my college days instead of in my 50s, I probably would have avoided a lot of later trouble, particularly the cognitive trouble that I ended up having due to alcoholism. But instead, I continued to drink uh, day in and day out, but I always ate well and took my B vitamins, and the only thing that topped my daily alcohol consumption was my degree of denial that I was an alcoholic. And I think even if I had realized I was an alcoholic, I never would have realized that I had any kind of brain impairment because, like so many of you out there, I was taught in medical school that uh, the only people that got toxic brain damage due to alcoholism were those malnourished, malnourished skid row drunks. And after all, I took plenty of thiamine. As, as many of you probably now know, there is ample evidence that you can get cognitive impairment as a direct effect of chronic alcohol use, even if you aren't malnourished or deficient in thiamine. Now, in looking back, uh, my own symptoms started very insidiously. I think as far back as 20 years ago, but in reconstructing things, they certainly were well underway by eight years ago. I uh, started getting lost in my car. Now, Los Angeles is a big place and people are always getting lost on the freeway, so I just chalked that up to being tired and overworked and my friends would say, well, we get lost on the freeway too now and then, so they didn't help any. Uh, but it got worse and worse. I started to forget things. Uh, first, simple things like my glasses or my uh, office keys. Uh, but after all, I was, I was pretty busy and taking care of a lot of schizophrenic patients, so that got excused too. I had to take more and more notes to remember things, and I seemed to be tape recording more and more lectures and playing those tapes two or three times to get things straight. And then I began to find it hard to organize things, especially my files, but, but don't all busy doctors have that problem? So my secretary and my social worker and, and my wife, who's a uh, psychiatric nurse, seem to be doing more and more, and I seem to be doing less and less. Then I remember having difficulty planning things in advance, and I had a lot of trouble managing my time. I want to emphasize that. I just couldn't seem to get places on time. It was as if I couldn't see the forest for the trees and couldn't even keep track of the trees very well. Everything seemed to take longer and longer, and uh, more and more of the time I'd find that I was uh, sitting behind a piled-up desk at the end of the day, kind of bewildered and wondering why the day had passed so fast and how I'd gotten so little done, especially paperwork. You know how all that paperwork piles up? But after all, maybe I was just burned out. I, I was seeing all my patients, but not as many. But, you know, there was a doctor glut in California, and the big corporations were taking over all the patients anyway. And all this was very depressing. 
So he did what every self-respecting uh, psychiatrist is supposed to do when depressed. I went to one of my colleagues, a psychiatrist and psychopharmacologist on the faculty at UCLA, for a consultation. So I told him I wasn't getting much done, and he asked me if I was having difficulty uh, concentrating. I said yes. He asked me if I was having difficulty with my memory. I said yes. He asked me if I was sad, and I said yes. I know I must have looked pretty sad. He then asked me uh, if, uh, well, he didn't ask me very much about alcohol, so I didn't tell him very much. After all, I was drinking just a fifth of wine or so a day, and was still taking plenty of vitamins. This was in 1978, and I was still in full-fledged denial, and didn't know yet what was going on, and he didn't either. But maybe I didn't tell him enough. So I got diagnosed as having a primary uh, depression or a primary affective disorder. An easy mistake to make but a costly one for the patient, because the alcoholism and the thinking problem gets ignored. I will say more in a minute or two uh, how to pick up the memory difficulty uh, by adding a couple of simple things to, to your mental status. Most of us don't know how to pick up memory difficulty. But first I want to tell you what happened over the next six years. I was treated very vigorously for depression, and for the most part just got worse. But I did follow medical advice. I took all the pills he prescribed. <laughs> Tricyclics, just about every one in the book, and two or three different kinds of monamine oxidase inhibitors, both alone and in combination with the tricyclics, and a little Valium for my agitation, and a little Cerax, and a little Dalmain to help me sleep. Later they, they gave me Xanax because they were advertising that for depression too, and by that time I had tried just about everything else. I didn't argue, I just took the stuff in rather enormous doses and washed it all down with my wine every night at dinner. I took at least a fifth of, or, or so of wine to wash down all those pills. And besides that, anticholinergic stuff really makes your mouth dry. And although I wasn't getting any therapeutic effect uh, in terms of better functioning, uh, all those pills from time to time would goose up my affect a notch or two, so uh, they threw in a little lithium. So much, in fact, that I ended up in the hospital with lithium toxicity. Well, more time passed, and I became less and less able to handle my practice. Uh, so I thought, well, maybe I'll just get a part-time job. So one day after getting lost three times on the way to his office, I showed up about 30 minutes late uh, at the door of a friend of mine who was the medical director of a chemical dependency unit. I had heard he needed a part-time psychiatrist. <laughs> well, <laughs> he took one look at me and after hearing I had gotten lost three times coming five miles... He asked me if I drank and how much. Well, I told him, and the next day I was shipped off to the hospital, and I haven't had a drink or tranquilizer since. Now, 
I want to take a few minutes to review some of the literature. First, how much drinking does it take to show measurable cognitive impairment? One-fifth of whiskey a day? One pint of whiskey a day? Fifth of wine a day? Six-pack of beer a day? Uh, no, uh, it really doesn't. It really doesn't take that much. According to a study at the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse, a person only has to drink two or three ounces of whiskey or gin, two or three glasses of wine, or three or four beers per day to show measurable cognitive impairment. Well, that's pretty scary to me. They certainly never taught me that in medical school. I think that ought to be in bold print at the beginning of every chapter or book on alcoholism. I want to repeat those figures one more time. All it takes to show measurable cognitive impairment is two or three ounces of distilled spirits, two or three glasses of wine, or three or four beers per day. In the same study, it also pointed out that as we get older, our brains become more vulnerable to the effects of alcohol. People aged uh, 43 to 63 were more affected than people under the age of 43. So if you drink, get it over with when you are young. By the ripe old age of 43, your brain is really vulnerable. How many of you out there are recovering alcoholics? I've been good company. How many of you think you showed cognitive impairment at, say, about 30 days of sobriety? Yeah, pretty aware group. (laughs) Uh, One of the problems with all this, of course, is that uh, a lot of us tend to deny that we have cognitive impairment or we just don't know about it. A uh, composite of the statistics shows that of people going through chemical dependency programs with a diagnosis of alcoholism, and tested after three or four weeks of sobriety, only 30% are free of cognitive impairment. 60% have some impairment, and 10% have a lot of impairment. So what I'm talking about is not some kind of rare bird. Most of you, uh, judging by the show of hands, have had it. Now here I'd like to make a few general points. First, The degree of damage is like a continuum with the minor impairment as seen in social drinkers at one end of the scale and the very severe changes as seen in Korsakoff patients at the other end of the scale. Second, the same kind of changes that occur in alcoholism occur in normal aging, which explains why older alcoholics have a kind of double jeopardy for cognitive impairment. There are one or two subtle differences, though. Notably, alcoholics seem to become uh, to uh, become more impaired in the area of verbal memory than do the normal agent. But for the most part, the kinds of changes are pretty much the same. Third, despite rather widespread belief to the contrary, no other abuse chemical accounts for this kind of subacute or chronic brain impairment. Not cocaine, not cannabis, not pills, just alcohol the possible exception of some of the organic inhalants. Now, what are the kinds of deficits that we get? 
These can be divided into four major categories. One, difficulty with recent memory, which I've alluded to, which can be verbal memory, that is remembering words, or nonverbal memory, which is remembering things like geometric designs. Two, difficulty with visual-spatial reconstruction of the environment. Now, that has to do with things like picking out the part of a picture that is uh, missing and probably explains why so many alcoholics have trouble with geographical navigation and directions. Three, difficulty with problem solving. This has to do with assessing a problem and coming up with an answer, especially when two or more pieces of information have to be synthesized or when solving the problem requires much abstract thinking. Four, difficulty changing sets. That is, difficulty adjusting or responding to changing rules or changing circumstances. This is the most sensitive and the one where even social drinkers have impairment. As an example, I want to tell you about a simple problem I had a hard time trying to solve when I was about six months into my sobriety. I had been taken to the doctors in recovery meeting in uh, Manhattan Beach, which meets in an office right on Pacific Coast Highway, a pretty major thoroughfare. And knowing that I'd want to come back to the meeting, I picked up a card with the address on it uh, when I left. So you might say, well, what was the problem? I had the street address, and I knew how to get the Pacific Coast Highway in Manhattan Beach. Well, that's what I said to myself a few weeks later when I set out to find the building again. First of all, I forgot which side of the street the building was on, a typical visual-spatial problem. And second, I forgot the card with the address on it. So I tried again a week later, this time armed with the card with the address, but the building just didn't seem to be there. So I went home again, checked out the address, found it was right, and came back a third time. But I still couldn't find this building. I stood on the corner kind of bewildered and scratched my head and looked all around. Uh, I'd just been there a month or so before. They torn the building down. There was no vacant lot. I just couldn't find 1101 between 1100 and 1104. Then it dawned on me. I had been looking for a building with an odd address on the even side of the street on three different occasions. I hadn't been putting two simple pieces of information together, and I wasn't changing sets very well. I had been holding on to my preconceived idea that the building was on the east side of the street, and it really was on the west. Well, I was more than a little embarrassed, uh, but also was very glad to finally find that meeting again. I want to elaborate a little bit on recent memory difficulty. Recent memory has to do with learning, uh, retaining, and retrieving new material. Uh, Don't confuse this with immediate memory. Immediate memory is what we test for when we test for digit spans, and that is usually only impaired in things like end-stage Korsakoff, so don't spend too much time testing digit spans. Retaining and retrieving the information may be more impaired than the initial learning. 
it's as if things just slip away or get away sooner than they should be. When I was about two months sober, I decided I wanted to do a little swimming. So I went to the YMCA and got a locker, and they gave me one of those combination locks with a combination like uh, 26, 36, 21. And uh, knowing that I was having problems with my memory still, I really over-memorized that combination. I think I went over it every day for about a week. And that worked pretty well, and uh, I went to the Y several times a week, and I didn't have any trouble with the combination. Until several months later, I left town for a week, and I didn't use the locker. And then when I came back, I just couldn't remember that combination. It was kind of like there was a big sieve in my brain somewhere with gaping holes in it, and pieces of information that could stick just seemed to get washed into oblivion. Now, the part of the human brain most concerned with memory is the hippocampus, a uh, structure on the medial side of the temporal lobes. There are circuits involved, too, like the limbic circuit, which, by the way, also has a lot to do with affect and mood. But just remember the hippocampus for now. If the temporal lobes and hippocampi are removed, there is no longer any capacity for recent memory. There is a famous patient uh, by the name of Henry M., who some years ago had a bilateral temporal lobectomy, uh, which cured his temporal lobe seizures just fine, but it left him without any recent memory. And he could no longer remember anything for more than about a minute or two, even though his IQ was about 125, because he didn't have any more hippocampi. At least they didn't have to worry about Henry remembering the test questions when they repeated the questions. And that is pretty much what we see in severe Korsakoff patients. They just don't have any recent memory. So to a lesser degree, recent memory is impaired in alcoholics who don't have full-blown Korsakoff. I'd like to say a few things about two kinds of memory, episodic memory and semantic memory. Now, episodic memory is memory for generalities, memory for how to do it. And most alcoholics do pretty well on episodic memory. The other kind of memory is semantic memory, and semantic, semantic memory is memory for detail, and most of us don't do so well on that. Uh, typically, patients with an alcoholic brain syndrome or alcoholic cognitive impairment will have kind of a flat, hazy memory for detail. They won't be able to tell you much about a golf game that they played or a tennis game. They may remember that they played the game or that they won, but... They won't be able to remember all the details like so many normies can. So here I want to uh, talk for a minute or two about a good test that, mem- that measures memory. As, as I mentioned before, most of us don't have that in our mental status. The best most of us do is ask the patient to remember three objects after three minutes, and that's not so, so good because you can have pretty severe impairment and still remember three objects. The, the test I want to talk about is called the Wexler Memory Scale, not to be confused with the IQ test. Now, the Wexler Memory Scale is a fairly simple test that has been around for about 40 years that can be administered in about 20 or 30 minutes. And I want to talk about one part of that test, which any of you can do in 5 or 10 minutes and incorporate as part of your bedside mental status examination. This part tests recent verbal memory, the kind of memory that is most apt to be affected in the alcoholic. 
I'm going to read you a short story, and I want you to listen carefully and remember as much of the story as possible. So here we go. This is a story modeled after the stories on the Wexler memory scale. Kevin Hicks of West Los Angeles was in the fourth grade at Woodview School. He reported to his teacher that two of his books were stolen from his locker the day before. He was sent to the principal's office and told the books were worth $12. While he was there, the librarian, Jane Hawkins, said one of his books had been found in the hall. I just hate those things because I never did very well on them. But after reading the story, the patient is asked, tell me as much of the story as you can remember. The story is divided into 24 key words or phrases, and the patient is given one point for each key word or phrase that can be recalled. If you don't want to get the test, uh, be creative. Write a, write a one-paragraph story with about 65 or 70 words and divide it yourself into two dozen key words or phrases. I'll go through a couple lines of, of the story I just read and, and show you how it's divided. If you can remember Kevin Hicks, you get one point. If you remember West Los Angeles, you get two points, one for West and one for Los Angeles. If you remember the fourth grade, you get another point. If you remember Woodview School, you get another point, and so forth. So any of you can write a paragraph and, and uh, give this in uh, in five minutes or so. A normal 50-year-old should be able to remember about 12 or 13 of the key phrases, or about half of them. Alcoholics sometimes only remember three or four. Now, if someone had taken the trouble to give me this test back in 1978, uh, they might have saved me a lot of time and a lot of medical bills. Another really uh, easy test to perform is to see how people do in terms of their speech or word fluency. Just ask how many words they can think of that start with the letter R, as in Ralph, and time them for 60 seconds. The average literate person can think of uh, 10 or 15 words, or more in a minute, that start with the letter R. Uh, If they only come up with five or six, they're probably in trouble. I don't intend to get too detailed about testing, but I do want to mention several other tests that are used frequently to measure the kinds of deficits that are associated with alcoholism. Many of them, uh, contrary to common belief, uh, are fairly easy to give, and they don't require a lot of time to administer. When I had all this, they spent months trying to figure out who to send me to to do this long, complicated battery of neuropsychological testing, and I just want to say, for the most part, that isn't necessary to get some feel for this problem. First is the Shipley Institute of Living Test, sometimes just called the Shipley-Hartford. This is like a poor man's Wexler IQ test. Uh, unlike the WACE or the Wexler Adult Intelligence Scale, it doesn't take a psychologist to administer. It's a two-page test. There's 40 vocabulary questions on one side and 20 abstraction questions on the other side. And it can be filled out by the patient in a half hour. Alcoholics usually do all right on the vocabulary, uh, but they fall down on the abstractions. Next is the WACE itself. This, of course, is the most widely used IQ test and consists of 11 subtests, five of which are called performance subtests. The performance subtests are the ones most affected in alcoholism. 
These have to do usually or mostly with the right side of the brain, and they measure the ability to do visual spatial things, which I've talked about, and to do abstract thinking. Design, where the patient puts together little blocks to form a design, and the digit symbol subtest, where the patient visually associates unfamiliar symbols with numbers under the pressure of time. Another test I want to mention, uh, one that's very sensitive to both age and alcoholism, is the Wisconsin card sorting test. And this one can kind of be fun to give. It's something like playing poker. All you need is about five uh, minutes and a deck of special cards. The, the examiner deals four cards on the table face up, hands the rest of the cards to the patient, and uh, says, sort the cards. I'll tell you if you're right. The examiner then changes the sorting category several times during the test and doesn't tell the patient when he does this. The average person will pick up this change of rules in two or three tries, but the alcoholic will often become confused and uh, frustrated and angry uh, and may go back and try to sort the cards the first way, even though he is told that is wrong. In other words, the alcoholic tends to perseverate. The Wisconsin card sorting test, along with the stories from the Wexler memory test and the Shipley Institute of Living test, that's just three, make a good screening battery that can be given in a very short time and only require the examiner's presence for 15 or 20 minutes. The best time to give a screening battery is at about three weeks of sobriety. Before that time, uh, many patients are just too confused uh, to take the test. Finally, Alcoholics consistently do poorly on certain tests of the Halstead-Raytan neuropsychological test battery, especially three of these. The categories test, which is a test of visual-spatial uh, abstraction using projected slides. The Trails B test of perceptual motor speed, which is really just a variation of a children's game. Uh, on this one, the patient connects labeled dots by uh, quickly penciling in lines between the dots. And the third one here is the tactual performance test, which is a tactual memory test, which the patient does uh, blindfolded. I had a horrendous time on that. All right, there are other tests, uh, of course, but those are the ones you're most apt to read about. So in a nutshell, this is what the cognitive haziness or fog so many of us have had is all about. Now, what is the use of knowing much about this? Uh... After all, there isn't much that can be done about it anyway, is there? Well, that's not exactly so. People do recover from this. And uh, I want to especially say that to, uh, to any of you out there who are still struggling with the fog. You probably don't have Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and you will recover and get better if you stay sober. Neuropsychological impairment is not a static thing and will dissipate over time when the individual remains abstinent. Verbal learning, the thing that is most often the most disruptive, is usually the first to return. The ability to uh, analyze more complex stimuli begins to return at about one to two months uh, and continues to improve for several years. Significant recovery of function on all the tests I've mentioned does occur. So people get better across the board, although alcoholics as a group sometimes don't always improve to the level of standardized norms. 
And some improvement may take as long as four or five years. And I really want to emphasize that because that's not clear at all from some of the literature. Doesn't always, uh, it doesn't all go away in six weeks or six months. Believe me. I'm still reading my paper. Some of the earlier confusion in the literature about whether or not alcoholics recover from cognitive deficits was probably because populations were studied which did not clearly delineate alcoholics who had slipped or relapsed from those who remained abstinent. And there's still a paucity of long-term follow-up studies. I think more long-term studies will show an even more encouraging picture, especially in the area of some of the visual-spatial uh, deficits that seem to persist in certain people for over five years. There are a number of studies that now report that practice or retraining accelerates the natural course of recovery, and I think that's very encouraging. When practice was directly measured, sizable performance improvements occurred, even in those tasks which were not recovering spontaneously. Older alcoholics are generally more impaired, as I've mentioned, but interestingly enough, sometimes show more rapid improvement than younger counterparts when given retraining. So there is great hope for us, uh, even those of us over the age of 40 or 50. Furthermore, it has been shown that uh, practice or retraining in one area can be generalized uh, to other areas of impairment. In some of these studies, it was shown that the groups of alcoholics that received retraining very closely approach normal control groups, even in certain visual-spatial tasks. These reports uh, correspond to other observations in the literature that environmental and manipulation can improve initially impaired cognitive performance in humans with established brain damage. Last year, about this time, I was especially happy when I read a paper that reported that uh, Elderly rats, if put in an enriched environment, uh, improve in terms of their cognitive functioning. I, I really identified with those elderly rats. <laughs> uh, on autopsy, those rats were found to have, and I think this is really interesting, they were found to have certain cortical layers that were thickened compared to controls. So even if the neurons don't grow back, the dendritic connections will proliferate with appropriate stimulus. So if you have this, don't vegetate. Practice will improve your functioning, along with time and sobriety. The knowledge of this process, along with the knowledge that cognitively impaired people often do less well in recovery, will, I hope, prompt more attention to the fact that with special help, these people will recover. And, and perhaps many of these people in treatment programs are just labeled as unmotivated or are not ready to stop drinking. And maybe a more correct labeling would be cognitively impaired and in need of special help. You really need to go slow with these people. There is certainly a need for more widespread recognition of the problem and more widespread use of some of the relatively simple screening tests at the end of about three weeks of sobriety. It is not always obvious without the tests, particularly in uh, professionals and well-educated people. They can seem... Uh, perfectly okay, and come up with pretty uh, sizable and surprising deficits. So a few words about treatment and management. The most important part of treatment, of course, is to help the patient stay sober. 
People just don't get better if they continue drinking. In fact, they get worse. And as I don't have to tell you, there's no better program than AA to help people with that. Slogans like, uh, don't drink, uh, the first drink will get you drunk, uh, keep things simple and take one day at a time, were tailor-made for people with cognitive impairment. It's kept me going for two years. It's no accident that it's a custom in AA to say your name each time you get up to speak. Another item I do want to mention for completeness, if a person does show significant impairment on the screening test, they should be referred for a more comprehensive neuropsychological test battery and a good neurological examination. Uh, sometimes things like pre-senile dementias or other rare entities may give a very similar picture, at least in the beginning. Specific retraining of the more severe deficits is beyond the scope of my talk this morning, but generally speaking, it is similar to retraining people with other kinds of brain damage. There are a couple of things that I have found to be useful. Have people buy a book on how to improve their memory. You can buy one at any newsstand or bookstore. And have them practice learning new names by visual association. You know, the kind of thing where you meet somebody by the name of Jack and you, you try to use some kind of visual association. Maybe the guy has big ears, so you think of Jack Rabbit. And, and hence his, his name Jack. Uh, that can really help. Uh, there is evidence that alcoholics have trouble forming learning associations, so this kind of practice can be helpful. Or have people write papers or short compositions. Uh, that helps them practice organizing their thoughts and helps them uh, practice retrieving words. Finally, if there is concomitant depression of any magnitude, I strongly recommend psychiatric consultation. I would like to uh, wind up by making a few remarks about depression. It's pretty common knowledge that the incidence of depression in recovering alcoholics is, uh, is pretty high, although I've never been able to find exact statistics on the incidence. Uh, in related studies, though, uh, for instance, in recovering stroke patients, the incidence of depression is as high as 50%, with half of those having rather severe depressions. But in any event, it shouldn't be surprising that alcoholics uh, and recovering alcoholics have depression, because remember, uh, the limbic system, the one involved in recent memory, is also uh, involved in, in affect and mood. Treatment of the cognitively impaired alcoholic with depression should include a strong program for sobriety uh, and cognitive or supportive psychotherapy, uh, and at least in my opinion, reserving antidepressant medication only for those who fail to respond to the former. As Margaret Bean uh, from Harvard put it in a talk last year, last fall, the limbic lobe gets pickled too and can stay that way for a long time. So as a rule, I don't think it's necessary uh, with these people to make a dual diagnosis of primary affective disorder or primary de uh, depression. The vast, the vast majority of the depression is probably due to the residuals of alcoholism, and like the cognitive deficits, the depression may take a long time to clear. 
So depression should be given attention to, but the primary diagnosis of alcoholism uh, should always be the one on center stage. Uh, thank you for your attention. Thank you, Doctor. Well, well, that explains a lot to me. I remember when I was having trouble finding index cards. I wrote everything on. Oh.